Sunday, December 31st, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. A couple of things stayed pretty consistent throughout 2023. It appears the Democratic Party is sticking with President Biden and the polls ranking the 2024 Republican presidential candidates had one man at the top. And what's interesting is how Donald Trump spent 2023 really solidifying and winning back that group of the Republicans that were a bit skeptical of him or were thinking about, should we have another uh, option? I'm Jared Halpern. Bidenomics is the pitch President Biden is making the voters as he contends with poor polling on the economy and inflation. We look back at the year that was for the administration's domestic agenda. Economy-wide, we've had about six percentage points of disinflation. Inflation peaked a little bit above 9%. Last seen, it was 3.2%. So that's um, you know a 65% decline in the rate of inflation. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. It was a big field and a deep bench at first. The number of Republican candidates for president began growing in the late spring of this past year. Former President Trump announced his run in 2022. But former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley then announced in February. For a strong America, for a proud America, I am running for president of the United States of America. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, talk show host Larry Elder, Miami's Mayor Francis Suarez all joined the growing GOP list. Author Marion Williamson announced her bid for the Democratic nomination in March. And a month later, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced from Boston that he was running as well. My mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my, throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. But it was former President Trump who stayed on top in the Republican polls, even as he appeared in courtrooms up and down the East Coast. He's heading into 2024 and the campaign trail with 91 felony counts against him. He told a rally in Waterloo, Iowa last week. We got to be sure that we put this thing away. The poll numbers are scary because we're leading by so much. The key is you have to get out and vote because, you know, I tell it all the time. If you don't get out and vote, we can put this to bed after Iowa, if you want to know the truth. But he said crazy things could happen. So he again urged his supporters to vote. Okay, so I think the most interesting thing about this year in politics is just how rapidly and solidly it seems Donald Trump has solidified the support of the Republican Party um, as we head into next year. Arnon Mishkin is the director of the Fox News Decision Desk. I think at the beginning of the year, the polls were suggesting that Trump had a dominant share of you know, 25% that were committed to him. There were about 40% of Republican voters that liked Donald Trump, but that were exploring other options. And that was seen in the, in the strength that Ron DeSantis was showing in much of the polling. And what's interesting is how Donald Trump spent 2023 really solidifying and winning back that group of the Republicans that were a bit skeptical of him or were thinking about, should we have another uh, option? I think some of that obviously is due to the indictments, which I think forced Republicans to choose, am I for Trump or am I for the indictment of Trump and sided with Trump? But I mm. think it's been a a significant, um, it just shows how much political skill Donald Trump really has. 
And Arna, Democrats made some of the biggest news early on, right? They've changed their primary calendar. Iowa will not go first for the Democrats for the first time in decades. It's South Carolina going February 3rd, then Nevada on the 6th, Michigan on the 27th. New Hampshire was supposed to go on the 6th um, with Nevada, but they said, no, we're going to still be first in the nation. They're insisting on going January 23rd. Uh, The president's name will not be on the ballot in New Hampshire because of this. And one of the long shot candidates challenging President Biden is taking advantage of that, Congressman Dean Phillips. I think we will surprise. No, I don't have to win. I have to demonstrate that Americans are sick and tired of the nonsense, that we have a crisis that cannot be addressed by either Donald Trump or, frankly, President Biden, and it's time for change. But Arnon, how big a deal is the switch in the Democrats' nominating calendar? I thought it was going to have be fairly significant, and it's interesting that um, it ha- it doesn't seem to have become the big issue that I thought it might become. I mean, I, I, I everyone expected that the Democrats were going to dis Iowa um, for two reasons. One, the Iowa party, I think, screwed up the 2020 um, um, caucuses. Um, They didn't have any votes. They were supposed to count the votes. And number two, Iowa is not an important state. It's not a battleground state anymore. It once was. Mm. So um, the Democrats, I thought, were always going to dis Iowa. I was a little surprised that they were ready to dis New Hampshire. Um, And I understand that Joe Biden owes something to uh, Jim Claiborne um, of South Carolina, um, who endorsed him and was so important. Um, I didn't, you know, North New Hampshire is an important state. Um, The Democrats are likely to win it um, and win their four electoral votes, but they're not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And so I I was a bit surprised that they were going to um, poke the bear uh, in New Hampshire (laughs) and that they did. Will Um, it be a bigger deal, Arnon, if in if if this calendar holds in four years, like right now, the Democrats are sticking with President Biden. Right. But in four years from now that, you know, we expect a, we anticipate a very different um, electoral situation. Right. So if in four years, will, will this prime will this calendar change have been actually a bigger deal? Time will tell. But I think that's right. It, if it if it changes and if, that it will be a big deal, because if South Carolina is the first um, Democratic test, um, that will be a big deal and affect the kind of nominee that gets momentum early on. If New Hampshire is is a big deal, then that's a different kind of state because New Hampshire is very much a sort of a moderate Democrat, but hundred but predominantly white state, even among in among Democrats. South Carolina, amongst Democrats, is a predominantly African American state, and so that will affect the you know the kind of positions that that some challenger, particularly sort of one of the also rans. Um, who will try to be making a name for him or herself uh, four years from now um, will focus on whether or not they need to focus on getting sort of having lightning strike in New Hampshire or having lightning strike in South Carolina. Okay, and as you noted, on the Republican side, in in many ways, the year started where it's ending, right, with with Trump um, being at the top of the polls even more so than before, Um, even if that means his campaign trail moving forward will be various courtrooms. And he said this year about that, that criminal cases against him amounted to election interference. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. This is their way of campaigning. I guess his base believes that. But you and I have talked about this, um, right? Maybe not maybe not just his base believes that maybe some other folks believe um, he's being unfairly targeted. But with all of these criminal counts. I, yes, <laughs> I think that that what it has done is solidify the sort of MAGA wing of the Republican Party and enabled it to grow a bit 
on some skeptical uh, thing. Uh, um, it's it's solidified the MAGA wing of the Republican Party in support of him. I don't know the impact it is going to have on independent voters, yeah. um, particularly sort of swing voters in November, and whether or not that's going to um, cause any sort of decline in his support as these indictments, or whether or not they too will will side with him that it was election interference and something done by the Biden administration or, or what have you. But Arnon, um, there's some I polling suspect- right that says that if he's convicted. That if the felon label is attached, if the conviction label is attached, that that is a a problem for some voters? Yes, some polling indicates that. Um, But you never know what's going to happen because between now and a possible conviction, or shall we say a verdict, two things are going to happen. One, there are going to be a lot of appeals that are sort of uh, will stretch out the calendar. And number two, there will be some um, testimony. Um, if the court ha- case happens, and it's not clear that the testimony will that the testimony won't be damaging, um, so mm. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't bet my the, the farm that um, past is is a prediction of the future, and that as these court cases go on, he'll continue to grow support. I think he's grown support amongst MAGA Republicans. He hasn't yet grown support amongst independents. Okay, all right. Let's talk about the the. Folks vying for second place, right? Governor, um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he he made everything official May twenty fourth, saying he was going to run months after Nikki Haley had had already done so in South Carolina. DeSantis did it on Twitter. She did that in her home state, and, and it took a while, but she started to see momentum. There you have it. You're watching. So the reality make America is, less you have no foreign me, policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? The, the foreign policy experience. It appears that momentum started ticking up after that the first debate, but specifically in New Hampshire before the national polling started to reflect that, right? Like in September, it was big news when a poll showed that she would beat President Biden by like six points while everyone else was in that sort of toss-up category. Nikki Haley has definitely has momentum on her side. Um, This past week, um, she had a bit of a glitch um, in her answer to the question about the Civil War. Um, We don't yet know how that's going to play out. It's obviously playing out on social media and amongst the aficionados of politics. Uh, We don't know how it's going to play out. But right now, she is very strongly positioned in New Hampshire. She has the support of the governor. And the governor has has quite a machine ability to sort of get the vote out for her. Um, and the polls have shown her, you know, sort of within 10 points of Trump or thereabouts or within 15 points of Trump. Um, and um, before yesterday, before the, the events of the Civil War answer, I was ready to say, if you give me odds, I'll bet that Nikki Haley wins New Hampshire. Um, really? So, I mean, I think the very solid candidate, um, whether or not the Civil War answer causes her any glitch, um, time will tell. Um, but she has clearly navigated well the sort of to sort of capture the 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 wing of the party that doesn't want Trump to be the nominee, while also making herself acceptable to parts of the party that like Donald Trump but think maybe we should explore other options. Um, and in particular, I think the way she navigated the answer on abortion, which is mm. clearly an, a challenge for Republicans, I think has suggested she has real uh, real political skills. On the other hand, her answer on the Civil War suggested maybe. Those skills are overrated. We don't know. Arna, was there a particular moment where DeSantis began to struggle? I remember when he changed up his campaign operation. I think um, it was summertime, a big donor to the DeSantis Super PAC said he wanted to see him adopt a more moderate approach. And after that, he was slimming down his campaign staff. He told Fox's Harris Faulkner in August. 
I set out the vision. If that vision is not realized, I make changes to be able to get us going forward. But I can tell you this, uh, when you're on the ground in Iowa and New Hampshire, like we've been over the last six days, you know, those voters want to see you. The big super PAC backing him lost two main officials in late November, early December, including Adam Laxalt. What, what's going on with his campaign? Well, I would like the record to show that I was a skeptic if you will, about DeSantis early on. And mm. I thought other people in the field might might make it. But I will say that I think that running a national campaign and being a national candidate is really hard. And some people have that magic. Um, Trump has that magic. Um, I mean, and we've seen that. Uh, and DeSantis, I think um, he's, he's not as personable a candidate. He's not he doesn't come off as likable um, as uh, other candidates do. He doesn't look like a, a person who's having fun um, on the campaign trail. And mm. most winners, um, regardless of their politics, they look like they're having fun. Um, even Joe Biden, he has trouble walking, but he kind of looks like he's having fun. <laughs> um, and so, and that's a, a skill, and it's a magic um, that 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 solid candidates have, and that others don't. And and DeSantis, for whatever reason, has appeared wooden from at times. And I think that that he's sort of not learned, if you will, how to be a really solid candidate. And that's one of the challenges he has. On the other hand, and there's also been a problem of campaign strategy. I think um, DeSantis bet the campaign on the idea that. I'm going to be Donald Trump, a shrewder. I know how to run government. I look at what I've done in Florida. And I think that in doing so, he sort of gave short shrift to the part of the party that was sort of anti-Trump. And um, and I think that that may have been a mistake because Donald Trump was busy consolidating the support of both his longtime supporters as well as sort of some folks who were Trump skeptics. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Finally, one more. We, we, I don't think we can end our year of review of 2023 without talking about RFK Jr. Um, he initially said he would run as a Democrat, then he switched over to run as an independent in October. That's not all. I'm here to join you in making a new declaration of independence for our entire nation. He has some poll numbers, but he, he's not on the ballot in enough places, right? And now we hear this American Values Pack, which supports him, is working to get him on the ballot in Arizona, California, Georgia, Illinois, Michigan, New York, and Texas. I, I'm reading that apparently the, the pack is hoping that he could win a contingent election where where no one has won 270 electoral votes needed, so he, he would get a chance somehow in there. Is Is there a path for this person, or is it more about siphoning votes away from one person or another? You know, when you're when you're born a Kennedy, you're kind of raised with the idea that you, there's a path to the White House. Um, and and I <laughs> part of me sort of looks at, at RFK Jr. and thinks that's what's going on here. Um, on the other hand, um, he's got real name recognition because of his magical name, if you will. And uh, and so he's doing well in the polling. I am skeptical of his chances. I'm skeptical of how many states he's going to be on the ballot on. And I'm skeptical of what happens But um, as the election proceeds, because third-party candidates always poll early strongly and then sort of decline at the end. Um, and But, you know, the other thing about um, RFK Jr. is, unlike some of the other third-party candidates, it's not clear he's only taking votes away from Joe Biden or the Democrat, whoever the Democrat's going to be. It does seem like he's taking, because of his anti-vax stands and other mm -hmm. things, he has he does take some stands that are taking the sort of, taking away the sort of um, 
what was originally the Kennedy base, which is um, uh, white Americans who don't have college degrees, um, he's sort of taking some of that away from Trump. Uh, so how it plays out in the campaign, I don't know. I don't see him being able to win a contingent election, but never say never in politics. <laughs> it would sure be exciting, if not dramatic. Arnon Mishkin, director of the Fox News Decision Desk, thanks for joining. Thank you very much for having me, Jess. Bidenomics and how voters feel about it will play a big role in whether the president wins a second term next year. So far, the polling hasn't been great, even as President Biden touts an agenda he says is bringing down costs and everyday expenses for Americans. One cost the Biden administration had hoped to pass on was a substantial student loan forgiveness plan, allowing borrowers under certain income caps to have as much as $10,000 in federal student loan wiped clean. On June 30th, a 6-3 Supreme Court ruling struck down that plan, concluding the Education Department did not have the authority. Instead, President Biden is moving along with more targeted forgiveness. Back in January, when that big program was still all systems go, I spoke with Jared Bernstein, the chair of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors, about the high price of higher education. The other part of the debt cycle, Jared, is how expensive college has become. Mm -hmm. What tools are available from the executive branch, from Congress to try and get at that? Because this doesn't seem to disincentivize colleges and universities from, from charging what they're charging, does it? No, I mean, I think the important thing there is to look at this other really important announcement that was uh, made, which is uh, a new income-driven repayment plan. There are a bunch of these plans, unfortunately, mm -hmm. it makes it pretty confusing. And the reason is, yeah. is because um, the Ed Department has has a mandate to uh, provide these sort of plans. And so they sort of stack up one on top of each other. We think the one that was introduced is uh, uniquely strong in terms of helping to offset the cost of college. But that's, you know, on the consumer side, um, it takes the payment uh, down from 10%. Oh, under these income repayment plans, you pay a percent of your income. So it's if your income goes up, you pay more. If your income comes down, you pay less. And if your income is very low, you pay zero and you don't get penalized for it, nor under this new plan do you collect interest for it. And you pay 5% of your income under the new plan, not 10%. So cuts mm -hmm. that in half. So really, uh, a really great beneficial program. But you're talking about the other side, the college side. And well, look, I mean, yeah, I mean that, that that's what's driving the, the debt crisis. I mean, I think there are actually a number of things that are driving. That's one of the things. I think we've also had a, a real disinvestment in public universities. That's been very problematic. As state governments disinvest in their public universities, uh, they just shift those costs on, onto uh, consumers and students. And look, anyone who can hear my voice knows that the following is true. We tell every kid in this country to go to college, and then we make it way too hard for them to do so. And so I think what the president did, both with debt cancellation and with the income-based repayment, and also some other factors that get to what you're talking about now, some things that really hold, try to hold college's feet to the fire, those, uh, you know, if they're, if they're raising tuition and they don't have the kind of output to support that, uh, they're defrauding students or their, their graduates don't end up with gainful employment, um, you know, we're going to call them out. And that's helpful. That's using the bully pulpit to uh, get these schools to deliver a, a much more honest and affordable product. 
Uh, but there is a role for Congress to play here, and nobody is saying that we're done with our work in this space. A few weeks ago, on December 3rd, Jared Bernstein was again on From Washington to discuss inflation, an issue that continues to drag down President Biden's approval ratings and improvements in the supply chain the administration believes will keep store shelves well stocked. Very soon after we got here, so in might have been February of 21 or March, uh, the president set up something called the Supply Chain Disruption Task Force. I remember it because I was an active card-carrying member. And you may recall, if you follow this stuff, that's when we were all obsessing over dwell time, how, how long containers were spending in ports, and where there was a traffic jam in the ports of Long Beach in LA. And that task force uh, got to work and was very successful in early unsnarling of the supply chain. And there's very good data showing um, how uh, much not only supply chains have improved, but how important that improvement has been uh, for lowering inflation, for disinflation, especially of goods, of course. And uh, so you might say, well, uh, isn't that work behind you? But no, we have to take the lessons we learned from that episode of uh, seriously non-resilient supply chains and make sure that they stay unsnarled, make sure that all the agencies are working uh, uh, to ensure that uh, they have ongoing supply chain uh, uh, that, that they're, they're the supply chains they face, so HHS in terms of medicines, um, are, are smooth and unsnarled. And so we're going to build on what we've learned, build on what we've done to maintain uh, the, uh, the resiliency that uh, we've helped to implement. The HHS component of this it seems really important, right, given yeah. what we learned in COVID. Um, how much of these medications that we rely on are being manufactured overseas? I don't have a percentage because there's so many different medications. Um, and, you know, overseas ca uh, covers a lot. So what you want to be mindful of is geopolitical conflicts and pressures that your supply chain can embed in ways that could be destructive and, and, and threaten, uh, you know, our security whether it's national security or in this case, health security. So think about China in this mm -hmm. regard. So you, you want to diversify away from areas like that. And, you know, we, we have uh, in the past depended on China for uh, lots of our prescription uh, drugs. So um, this is what comes under the rubric of friendshoring, making sure that uh, you're still trading because uh, nobody's talking about uh, complete domestic supply of everything, um, but you're, you're, you're onshoring where you can and you're friendshoring where you need to. So when you say friendshoring, that's making sure that the countries that we rely on are not countries who could like hold this over our heads. Yeah, so our, exactly. Our like trade, NATO our, countries or countries that we have really good trade relationships with. Exactly. Our trading partners are our friends. Yes. How much of inflation over the last two years, let's say, has been tied directly to the snafus in the supply chain? It's funny you should ask that because we published a blog post on exactly this yesterday, uh, and uh, we uh, we've had about eighty percent of our disinflation coming from uh, supply chain improvements. It's a little more complicated than that because in the statistical analysis we did, this is a CEA blog that I commend to everyone. I mean, it's, we've tried to write it in a way that it would be you know understandable to any readers. You don't have to be a, an econometrician to get it. Uh, but 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 we we interacted supply and demand. So what does that mean? 
supply chains became snarled uh, because of COVID, and this is a global thing, just like the inflation was global. Uh, supply chains became snarled at a time when demand for manufactured goods was very strong. Um, in part, this was because people were no longer interacting with in-person services and they had extra savings, in part because they were spent, spending more time at home and they wanted to fix up the home office and so on. And so the interaction of snarled supply chains and strong demand led to a global inflation that was uh, you know, high here, but high uh, in, uh, in, in all other advanced economies. And in fact, it's come down more here than it has there. We've had more disinflation than those other countries. And that's been good to see. And as we show, that relates to a, a big chunk of that. The majority relates to uh, improvements in the chains. Well, you keep using this phrase disinflation. That's a mm -hmm. little bit different than deflation, right? Because we, we got the, the PCE report yesterday that said that inflation was down like three and a half percent, I think, from a year ago or is at three and a half percent. But that's still up right month to month. It, it like Well, in fact, month to month, it wasn't up. Month to month, it was zero. Uh, so it was flat. But yes, there's a difference between disinflation, which means slower inflation. So economy-wide, we've had about six percentage points of disinflation. Inflation peaked a little bit above 9%. Last seen, it was 3.2%. So that's um, you know a 65% decline in the rate of inflation, but that's slower inflation. Where we've seen deflation, uh, which means falling prices, yeah. not falling inflation, but falling prices, where we've seen deflation is in some goods where you really saw price spikes. So used cars, eggs, uh, uh, some other dairy products. Airline fares are an interesting one because airline fares are down, I think, 13% over the past year. They're actually lower than they were pre-pandemic. So there we've seen some really, I think, uh, you know, useful disinflation for people who are traveling around and want to want to get a little breathing room there. What's the goal here? I mean, three and a half percent is under four percent. I know four. By the way, yesterday you're, you're like citing core standard. inflation. You're citing core inflation. Yesterday, I believe the year-over-year yeah. year inflation was three percent, not three five. That's for okay. the headline. Yeah. But what is so? What is the goal? I mean, is it to kind of have prices continue? I mean, you want some inflation, or do you want negative inflation? What What are you trying well, to? Okay, so that's a more complicated question than it sounds. In the following sense. The institution that sets an inflation target is not the administration or the White House, it's the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve has an inflation target and uh, they, uh, that, that's, that's, their, that's their work. We stay out of their knitting. Um, from our perspective, um, the goal, as the president talks about it <clears throat> every time uh, he talks about the economy, is to give families more breathing room. Um, yes, we've enjoyed um, significant disinflation, and pretty remarkably from an economic perspective, we've done so without giving up much at all on the unemployment rate side. Um, implicitly, you and I have already talked about that because most of the improvement in inflation has been from normalization of supply chains. We haven't had to give up a lot on the labor market side. We still have very strong GDP. It grew 5% in the third quarter. That's blockbuster growth. We've had an unemployment rate below 4% for 21 months in a row, millions of jobs. So we've kept a tight labor market while having more disinflation. But you know, obviously, if you listen to people, uh, people's sentiments about this, um, you know, they're 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 still um, they're st they still need more breathing room. And so, what the president talks about is, in terms of targets, is continuing to maintain 
a great economy, a strong labor market, rising real wages, while putting downward pressure on inflation and helping people with costs, directly helping people with costs, getting rid of junk fees, making sure that if you're going to a concert or checking into a hotel or renting a car, you're not getting gouged, you're not getting hit by a junk fee, making sure that if you're buying insulin, you're paying $35 a month, that's in the IRA, making sure that Medicare can bargain for lower prescription drug costs, helping people directly lower costs and fighting to keep inflation down as best we can. That's that's the goal. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that was where I was going to lead this, right? Because obviously economy or economics is one thing and the political perception is quite another. And obviously you work in the White House, the political perception matters a, a great deal. You mm -hmm. saw, I'm sure, this report um, uh, from the Senate earlier this week, um, that Americans are, are spending about eleven thousand more dollars just to maintain the same standard of living uh, from January twenty twenty one. That's a lot, right? I mean, it, it, is there sort of equivalent with how that analysis was done for, from the uh, Joint Economic Committee? Yeah, I think that was a, a flawed piece of work that doesn't reflect people's experiences at all. Um, in fact, if you look at you know, one of the things they're doing there is they're taking the growth in inflation um, over a bunch of years and comparing it to uh, costs without factoring in income at all or wage growth at all. You know, we've had we've had. So let me let me put it this way. If you look at the increase in inflation since 2019, of course, it's come down a lot over the last year, but it's up. Uh, you know, it's up 19 uh, percent, um, I think, since 2019. Actually, uh, if you look at, at real disposable income, that is people's incomes after taxes, um, you know, controlling for inflation, it's up 24 percent. So if you just look at the price side, you're going to miss um, gains that people have made on the income side. And in fact, disposable income, real wages, net worth, all of those uh, are up and consistently up uh, such that um, people's buying power is improving. Now, our work is not done. That 11,400 is a nonsense number, but that doesn't mean that people are feeling great. Um, we've got more work to do. And the way we do that is to maintain the strong job market, cut costs where we can, take action against junk fees, make sure that people can afford the healthcare they need by lowering prescription drug costs, getting in there and you know, fighting for lower costs, fighting for lower profit margins, as you've heard the president do lately, while we maintain the current uh, wage and income growth. I think that's the way forward. And uh, we're on the right path, but we have to do more of that. I think when it comes to Republicans, since you brought them into the mix here, um, we should really compare what, uh, you know, what, what I've just described with, um, you know, from what I can see, a policy agenda, which looks like it's focused on cutting taxes for the most wealthy, giving giving big breaks to big pharma as we're pushing the other way, trying to lower prescription costs and um, enabling you know, rich people to rip off the IRS. And so I think if you look at what we're trying to do versus what the folks who published this uh, incorrect study are trying to do, you come to a pretty different conclusion. Let me finish with this because I know I, I saw this um and I know the president's working on trying to get more Americans and in, in really the entire market to shift more towards electric vehicles. At the same mm -hmm. time, uh, China controls an awful lot of those critical minerals needed for the batteries. There is this new uh, 
a rule that, that's expected to go in place that would maybe ratchet back some of those uh, federal tax credits that, that folks get for EVs. How do you balance that, right? How do you balance kind of the need to, to wean industries away from maybe hostile actors or, or nefarious actors and at the same time not have that drive up cost for consumers? Well, one very direct way we do that is by providing a subsidy of $7,500 for uh, people who buy electric vehicles, uh, and that makes them cost competitive. While that, um, while that subsidy is in place, uh, we provide um, a lot of incentives for domestic production of uh, precisely uh, these components. And I'm sure you've seen, if you follow this, um, I think the latest number I saw was $600 billion of private capital building manufacturing facilities in this country in precisely this space, electric vehicles, uh, battery production, clean energy production. Uh, these uh, create construction jobs in building all those factories and, of course, longer-term jobs once those factories are up and, standing, uh, up, up and running. But along with jobs, they're creating domestic production in precisely this space so that we can meet the criteria set out in the legislation that you described for, for you know, domestic content requirements. Now, these domestic content requirements are phased in uh, so that uh, these, these uh, companies have, a, have time to stand up. And we have to kind of walk and chew gum here. We have to um, build the airplane as we're flying it, uh, make sure that we're building this capacity uh, while we're uh, still um, importing critical minerals that we need to do this, you know, in the meantime, while we're standing up more domestic production. But that's the plan. And, you know, quite <laughs> the extent to which uh, it's being executed looks pretty remarkable to me. Jared, appreciate the time as always. Jared, great to talk to you. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Next week, the calendar turns to an election year. So we will have plenty of reporting on the latest moves in Iowa and New Hampshire. And we'll follow if Congress is any closer to striking an immigration deal needed to unlock billions of dollars in aid for Ukraine and Israel. This week, the Pentagon allocated what is likely the last batch of U.S. military assistance for Ukraine without additional funding. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.